Welcome to Fertility and Sterility On Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS On Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. Everybody. Welcome to another episode of FNS Unplugged. I'm your co-host Pietro Bordletto. Back at it with Blake, Dalon, Molly, and the whole gang. How is everyone? Doing so good. Sorry, Molly. Go right ahead. Tell us how you're doing, Molly. I'm doing well too. It's great to see you guys at ASRM. You didn't see me because I was out in the club. I'm still sleeping off that 48 hours, but I mean, it was it was a beautiful conference. I will say that. Dalon was discussing research on Bourbon Street. I had a about a four second encounter with Daylon in person for the first time ever. It was leaving the FNS meeting. I went up and put my hand on his shoulder and said, in the flesh. And then I had to leave. But it was great to see you in person. That singular interaction will carry you through for the rest of the year, I suspect. It's yeah, all I needed. it's really what I needed in that moment. And I, I'm going to I'm going to carry that with me. In my it was heart. great. It's great. Very nice. Well, I'm, uh, I'm proud of all of us for seeing each other in uh, in real life. But back to our usually scheduled program where we're meeting on a small screen at the end of our busy work days to talk about the science, FNS science, FNS reviews, FNS reports, and the consider this sections. We're going to go backwards. I feel like Molly typically goes somewhere in the middle or last. I want to lead off with Molly. Molly, you have a cool article in this month's issue of the online consider this talking about peer review, which is kind of a non-traditional topic for us to be publishing on. It's people kind of poking holes or sometimes poking fun at the way that we review articles. Tell us a little bit about what this author had to say. Great. Thanks, Pietro. So the Consider This piece I chose for today is called Peer Review Today, Necessary Yet Inadequate, A Call for Unlocking the Potential by author Dr. Afshin Azimarad. So in the article, the author talks about some of the potential issues he sees surrounding peer review, and then also proposes some interesting solutions. So I just chose a few of the points to talk about today, and we can all kind of talk about them together. So one of the things the author spends a lot of time on is subjectivity in peer review, which I think is an important point that a lot of us could agree with. The author describes how reviewers have biases based on an author's institution or reputation, I have seen some journals where reviewers are actually blinded, so you don't see who the authors are, you don't see what institution they're from. I think that's one way that we could try and control for this bias, but sometimes you try to control and blinding is just not really possible, especially when the methods or the cited sources make it pretty clear who the authors are or what institution they're located at. But what do you guys think? Do you think we should have reviews be blinded uh, as to who the authors and institution are when we're reviewing a journal article? I think so. I do think so. I will say I've I've received reviews before and I see the primary author as one of my friends. And it is say I, I will admit reading through it, I have to be like, all right, not my friend, gotta gotta phase that out, try and really just review this fairly and not worry about who's writing it as as the first author. But yeah, I think so. I also agree with you, Blake and Molly. I think peer review in a perfect world should be blinded. And I've we've talked about this as an editorial board. We've talked about this as a journal leadership and the counter arguments to that exist. There are a few and primarily it's one about just being able to sniff out dishonesty or conflict early rather than late. There are certain patterns of people and places in the world where sometimes you get 
research that's not totally accurate or honest, or you kind of have a real significant conflict of interest that you wouldn't otherwise pick up on until you see the author list or where it's coming from. And depending on the paper, depending on the context, that could be really, really helpful and make you look at a paper with kind of that extra layer of suspicion or um, criticism about a paper. So I'm fundamentally for blinded peer review, but I understand some of the nuance to, to some of this. Listen, you don't, you guys don't want to get me started on peer review. Uh, there's so much anguish there. So I'm just going to try and keep it short. But the, the, my response to that would be, yeah, well, I agree with you guys in principle and theory. I don't think it's at all practical. Um, and I will point to the fact that, yeah, maybe peer review is quote unquote broken, but it's not, it functions. Uh, you got to give me a, a, a unbroken alternative before I'll start to like really consider it. And I think that those are all real, really theoretical. And, and I will say they've been trialed, like the NIH trialed this, uh, you know, grant review, which the stakes are much higher where it was blinded. And I think, uh, you know, as you would expect, especially in a grant review, you have to put your whole body of work out there to support your hypothesis and project, like you sniff it out in a second. So the idea that it can be blinded, I think is impractical. It's already blinded in terms of the people, you know, that are reviewing you, but oftentimes you get to request reviewers who are in the same field of expertise. The, the reason why I think it works, and I don't know about in the clinical context, because as uh, Blake alluded to there, you see someone on the author list and it's your friend um, and it's a small world. As I saw in the ASRM meeting, there's maybe thousands of docs there, but the world of uh, expertise, the silos are, are you know, everybody knows your name, sort of. And so I think that there's more of a conflict maybe clinically uh, than in academic circles, and I'm speculating here, but rather than having a friend, you have more of an adversary. There are no friends in science. So like you may have someone that you know and, and are collegial with and get along with, and as long as they're not like a collaborator, in which case there's a clear conflict and you're not allowed to review it, you're like psyched to tear their whole work apart and to, in order to make it better. So like the idea and the notion of both malevolence and also like, you know, generosity in review. I won't speak to how valid those are, but I would say that the, the malevolence is good natured and it's the point of review. So that friendly adversary setup is positive. And the real challenge I think is in the small world of expertise, like in ART, that you get a lot of rich get richer type scenarios because papers that maybe shouldn't get through, get through for, from an over generous review. And I've said my piece, and I'm going to shut up now. It's good to hear that Daylon doesn't have strong opinions on this. He said, don't get him started. So that's on us. We got him started. We'll own that one. Molly, I, back to you. I am stopped now. That was a good discussion. I'm just going to make one more point in that case. So something I thought about as a solution is just to have more reviewers. You kind of dilute that bias if you have more reviewers. But I imagine that has quite a burden on both editorial boards and the reviewers themselves. It can be tricky um, to find enough high quality reviewers. So um, I'm always pretty impressed whenever I submit something with the really high quality of reviews I'm receiving. I'm like, wow, they found three different people to read this in this much detail who are really experts on the topic. Um, but I'm not on the side of requesting people to review these articles and don't realize how difficult that is. Uh, I 
just an idea I wanted to share that I thought could could work from the journal perspective and make this my own consider this. I had a PI who said that every paper you submit, you should review, do at least three peer reviews. So every one paper, you should be doing three peer reviews. And I thought I'd really try to stick to that in my own career. And I wondered if there could be some sort of actual accountability on the part of the journal or even one of those big publication houses that has all these journals. You know, if Elsevier says, well, you've submitted three, three papers this year and we are expecting nine reviews. Uh, and, you know, you don't want to force reviews because they're not going to be as high quality. They may not be from um, qualified people, but I do think uh, there could be some more encouragement to give back to the field. But what do you guys think? I think all of that sounds very aspirational. I'll tell you, as someone who actively sends out papers for peer review as an associate editor for FNS, that it is really tough to get the following three things. One, to get someone to agree to peer review. You're typically sending it out to two to three times as many people before you actually get down to the actual number of reviews that you want. Two, to get a high quality review. There's a lot of fellow level reviews where people do kind of grammatical work on a paper. You don't really want that. Like we have editors for that. Um, what you really want is someone to critically appraise how the data is presented, how the study was organized, is the methodology sound, does this actually arrive towards the truth? Um, and then the third is just getting it done in a timely fashion. People are expecting peer review to kind of clip along. But the reality is it can take a few weeks to find someone. It can take them a few weeks to turn something around. And if it sucks, you have to start the process all over again and find an additional reviewer to really give the paper a clean look and kind of an, an honest assessment. Other journals have tried different things. There are some journals that pay for peer review. It's a small fee, but makes people feel good. And I think that probably encourages people to do a better job and a faster job. Um, there's economics involved in there that I think are complicated. Um, there are some people that give people credits or tokens for review. So if you do enough reviews, then you get an open access fee waived if you're publishing in an open access journal. Those are kind of other models that have been explored. I think fundamentally people just don't really love doing stuff for free anymore in the modern era. And it's hard to blame them. This is a system that really is a little lopsided, right? The people who stand to benefit from it are the publisher. Um, and you for publishing in a journal that allows your name to get out there. There's a lot of free work that happens in the in-between time that I think a lot of academics have really started to name and revolt against. Um, but for now, it kind of really still feels very much like a necessary evil um, in academia. Yeah, I mean, not for nothing, but at that uh, board meeting at the ASRN, that was a major topic of discussion, right? And I think that the consensus, the challenge was that you can't get enough reviewers. And I think that that's also the challenge, but unfortunately, it's the solution is to try and get as many reviewers as you can in the pool, particularly because when I heard this uh, problem and challenge voice is that as the expertise becomes so diverse and the breadth of research that falls under the umbrella of reproductive biology um, and the journals become more inclusive and, and diversify their content. It's hard to find an expert. You know, it's hard to find someone in your pool that has expertise to adequately review something. And so they punt it. And, and I think, yeah, the only solution there is to get people in there who want to review it. I, I hate to say it, it seems so ridiculous, but the motivation has to be intrinsic. People got to want to review these things because they care about the science. And like the, the first, in my case, at least, you care about the science that is close to your own because you want to see, you know, what your 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 neighbors are up to. 
Well, this is a reminder for everyone who's looking for a peer reviewer. Send it to Daylon. It sounds like he's got the fire. I the love it. I love it. Give it all to me. Well, stay tuned. Molly, you probably have a few more things you want to tell us about this paper. I think you guys, all your discussion kind of speaks for itself. I'm glad we chose this one to talk about today because you're all very fired up right now. There's a lot more to read in the article, so I would definitely check it out. He has some great points or kind of interesting points about if you're doing multidisciplinary work where you integrate multiple different authors from different specialties. Well, how do you find the right reviewer for that, which kind of speaks to Daylon's point. But uh, I think I would check it out. Yeah, Blake, it's been heartwarming to hear you have such strong thoughts about peer review. I hope that you've been reviewing up a storm while we've been having our discussion. I have one in my queue, actually, I need to respond to. You probably sent it to me. I probably did. Make sure it's timely and, and good. Mm -hmm. Got it. You bet. Always. All right, we're going to make a hard pivot away from the peer review and towards the uterus. But specifically, we're going to talk about something called acum, accessory uterine cavity. Acum is one of those funny things. You've probably read a little bit about it recently. You've probably heard it being called different things, but the accessory cavitated uterine mass is defined as the presence of an accessory uterine cavity that's in close proximity with the uterus, but not actually communicating with its main body. That's fundamentally kind of the best way to think about what an acum is. It's been described for a really long time. 1912 is kind of the first report where someone's like, hey, this looks like a little blob of uterus next to the uterus. That's kind of funny. Um, but fundamentally, it has to contain functional endometrium inside of it and myometrium around it. The, the acum diagnosis, the pathology, really comes from fundamental malaria and development issues. So we know that they can either be broken down into issues of formation, fusion, or resorption. This is a failure in fusion. So you have tissue that develops but doesn't fuse to where it normally should. But there's kind of this funny new idea for how you how do you pinch off a little bit of this uterus that ends up next to a real uterus. And one of the things that I don't think I fully appreciated until I just did a little digging into this is remember the gubernaculum? Blake, I know you do. The gubernaculum is one of those of course. structures that exists in men that brings the the, the testes into the scrotum. But in, in women, is really a vestigial structure, but still develops. As it's developing, making its way into the inguinal canal, this gubernaculum is, we think, responsible for pinching up a layer of tissue that allows it to clump next to the uterus, but still allow for fully developed uterus to kind of create itself. So as it's making its way through the pelvis and into the, into the inguinal canal um, during those early stages of development, we think that's how these acumes actually come about, which is kind of cool and fully connect the two. Acum is pretty rare. There, there are estimates that are just really tough to come by because there's just not a lot of it published in the literature. And some of it's because we've just been calling it different things. You may have heard of something called the juvenile cystic adenomyoma. That's something that shows up a lot in the pediatric literature. Um, we're probably all talking about the same things, but just giving it different names. They're pretty straightforward to diagnose. Um, typically, patients are presenting with pain from obstruction. So whenever they're on their, their, their menstruating, that horn or that little area of tissue kind of fills up transiently and causes that distension discomfort that can be pretty easily seen on MRI and ultrasound, particularly during periods of like hematometra when it's distended. But the differential for it is kind of tough. And I said why I think a lot of people have had a hard time getting the diagnosis right. Could be a something that looks like a rudimentary functional horn, could be a Robert's uterus, a cystic adenomyoma, or even a degenerating fibroid. All of that under the sun can really trip people up in making this diagnosis. 
but fundamentally you have to have a normal uterus normal tubes normal ovaries and just right next to the uterus you should see this horn that's myometrium with functional endometrium inside of it the reason i'm talking about acum is not because i love acum and i think it's a cool diagnosis it's because there's a paper in fns reports that's talking about acum um they kind of walk through the history of vacuum, talk about some of the stuff that we've talked about, but present the cool case of a 31-year-old woman which showed up to their center with a seven-year history of primary infertility and chronic pelvic pain. She had been having pelvic pain basically since she was a young teen and had been managed on and off again with OCPs. And in periods where she ran out of her OCPs or came off of it, she would often present to the emergency room with kind of an acute exacerbation of pain, was told this is probably endometriosis. What does every young woman with pain have? Well, if you know anything about malignant anomalies, this is like a telltale sign of an obstructive anomaly. You're having pain that exacerbates with your period that's far and above and away what you experience during periods when you're not menstruating. That's obstruction until proven otherwise, and you have to go looking for it. If not, you'll miss it. So this patient had kind of persistent ongoing pain and eventually had a, a imaging that showed a one and a half centimeter area just to the left of her uterus that had the central cystic component because she wasn't trying to get pregnant. They initially just treated it with Lupron, which of course didn't do much. And eventually she saw an REI, which she came off the Lupron and was trying to get pregnant. And at the REI's office, they did an HSG because that's what we always do. Uterus looked great, tubes looked great. And they said, you know what, let's just start with a couple rounds of ovulation induction and IUI. But at some point in the evaluation on a 2D ultrasound, they noticed that, hey, there's this cavitating mass next to the uterus that fills up with blood. That's kind of funny. So they worked her up with the appropriate imaging study, a 3D saline sonogram or an MRI is really the, the workhorse for diagnosing malaria anomalies. And here they were able to show that there's this non-communicating left-sided mass that had functional endometrium within it and that made the diagnosis. This patient was ultimately referred for surgery. Again, this is not managed medically. There are very few instances where you would consider sclerotherapy to try to obliterate the functional tissue. It's really surgical excision. And the procedure for it's pretty straightforward. This was a mass that was kind of living within the broad ligament, kind of like a broad ligament fibroid. Open up the broad ligament, inject some vasopressin in the area that you're going to be excising. Excise this thing out and close the space with some, with some stitch. Pretty straightforward procedure, pretty straightforward recovery. And the cool part for this patient is that she got pregnant without assistance after this. Not that this was the reason for infertility, but I kind of treat it like an adenomyoma, an endometrioma. You have a collection of blood, that's kind of this little volcano of inflammation in the pelvis, and that can't be good for the endometrium. We know the endometrium is fickle and can respond to all kinds of different things. So maybe temporarily related, may just be luck, but a great success story in this paper where this patient was able to get pregnant successfully. The last two things about this paper is they do a nice little lit review of kind of what else has been published in the literature. There's only 70 reported cases of it in the literature. Vast majority of patients are presenting at age 25. Vast majority have a dysmenorrhea diagnosis. And then the vast majority of these masses are small, either on the right or left side of the uterus, typically within the broad ligament and about three and a half to four centimeters in size at the time of diagnosis. So if that sounds like a patient in your practice, think about ACUM, A-C-U-M, ask for it by name. Malarian anomalies are always those things that if you're not thinking about it in your differential, you'll miss it. And then you'll kick yourself for missing it when one of your colleagues makes the diagnosis. So great article, a nice fellow uh, paper if you're interested in reading learning a little bit more about this topic so that you don't make the mistake in missing it or getting the diagnosis wrong, but check it out in FNS reports.
what I thought was interesting about this paper was when I first read it through, I was like, how did they miss this on laparoscopy? I think they missed it twice on laparoscopy. But when you actually look at the pictures, there's these great images at the end um, where they have like all their imaging findings, HSV finding and their intra-op findings. And you could see how when it was not that swollen, I would have just thought, well, that's just a little, you know, intramural subserosal fibroid. I would have totally ignored it and not thought of it as a cause for her pain. But as it gets bigger, as they start to put everything together between the imaging and the and the intraop findings, that's where you really start to see what's going on. So thanks for choosing this, Beatra. This is a great learning point for me. It's a great case. I love a I love a paper that tells a tale, and this is a cautionary tale for all of us out there. All right. I can talk about malaria anomalies for a whole hour, kind of like Dalon can talk about peer review, but I've been advised by my uh, my handlers that I shouldn't. So we're gonna keep moving. Blake, you have a, another surgical-themed paper in FNS Reviews. Tell us more about it. I would be happy to, Pietro. My paper is entitled Fertility and Pregnancy Outcomes After a Uterine Niche Resection in Women with and Without Infertility, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. Before I discuss any further, I just want to clarify, am I saying niche appropriately? Is it called niche? How, uh, for the audience, how else would you pronounce it? What are the variations that you're, you're considering? I, I, I don't know. I don't know if it has like a E with a hyphen over it or like a French accent. Uh, you're thinking niche. <clears throat> niche. Sure. Like a, yeah. like, a, like a niçoise salad. People like word, niche, but uh, I'm think, thinking I'm thinking niche, but I've never called it niche. I, anyways, well, before I say niche, this word, definitely niche. I'm okay. gonna tell you something. I'm gonna explain it to you. It, it, the same people who say niche are the people who say get me a tomato. And I'm just saying it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't make any sense. You, you don't want to be that guy, Blake. I think is what Dale's trying to say. Well, and I I didn't want to be that guy. That's why I'm saying all of this, and, and now we're just in this unnecessary argument here. So, well, not argument, but. It, yeah. Anyways, uterine niche. Systematic I'd, I'd appreciate it if you pronounced it niche for the rest of the, the pod, niche. but do, do what you prefer. Okay. Well, before I say this word a hundred times, I just wanted to make sure I'm phonetically pronouncing it right. So some people may call this a C-section scar. Some people may call it an isthmacil, but this paper specifically refers to it as a niche. So henceforth, it will be referred to as a niche. And so a long-term complication of a C-section is a uterine niche. So this is an incomplete healing of the myometrium at the site of the C-section scar. And you all may or may not have known about this, but there's actually a European niche task force. Never so, met a group that loves a good task force more than our European colleagues. That's right. So there, there definitely is a European niche task force, and they define this as an indentation of the uterine myometrium of at least two millimeters at the site of the C-section scar. These are observed in up to 60% of women who've had a C-section, and they could lead to gynecological symptoms such as spotting, dysmenorrhea, chronic abdominal pain. And why do we even care about this defect with regards to infertility? So it's been hypothesized that the niche is detrimental to, the environment is detrimental for sperm penetration and implantation. This could be possibly due to accumulation of fluid within the uterus, distorted contractility of the uterus caused by fibrosis, accumulation of mucus or old blood in the niche, and also a physical barrier for embryo transfer and implantation. We've all had those embryo transfers, especially Udalon where you get their tip of your catheter that wants to just kind of navigate into the, the niche. It's real frustrating. And you transfer the embryo and then you just cross your fingers. It doesn't just move on down and implant right into it. So 
So there's various interventions that have been utilized to repair these. There's a hysteroscopic repair, a vaginal resection, which I honestly am not sure how that works, but maybe you all know, Pietro, I'm oh, sure. Yeah, that one's a nifty one. Yeah, that, there's, that... there's a actually a video on it on the Furtster uh, YouTube channel. Um, imagine if you close your eyes in your mind's eye, you're performing an anterior repair. Got it. And you start that anterior repair and you're like, oh, hold on a second. I've decided I want to do a vaginal hysterectomy. So you pop into the to the anterior cul-de-sac surgically. And instead of taking down pedicles, you're really just bringing the lower segment of the uterus into the vagina so that you can expose the lower segment. And it's kind of staring right at you and you excise it and you repair it in layers and then you push everything back and finish your anterior repair. Really nifty, kind of a cool technique. I think the reason why a lot of people don't do it is because who's really comfortable with vaginal surgery anymore, except a urogynecologist. Um, and urogynecologists are getting nowhere near cesarean scar niches. But you see it a lot in the Chinese literature and some of the European folks do it. It's really cool. Interesting. So maybe the European niche tax force, maybe they do it. So, well, I'll be interested to hear what you think of this paper, Pietro, because spoiler alert, they're not too fond of this surgery. And um, so whether or not you do them, we'll talk about that towards the end, but I'm going to talk about what they went over in this paper. The primary outcome, so they basically wanted to look at, is this something that we should be doing? The fertility outcomes on this are unclear, so they wanted to mull over the data and see what they find. So the primary outcome was live birth. Secondary outcomes included pregnancy and miscarriage rates, occurrence of an ectopic pregnancy, uterine dehiscence, and other obstetric complications. The patients were basically separated into two groups, Women diagnosed with infertility per the usual WHO definition based off of duration of infertility and their age, and also women wanting to conceive, but they don't have the diagnosis of infertility. They ultimately reviewed a little over 3,800 records. These were published between 2005 and 2021, of which 21 articles were included. There was one randomized controlled trial, one case series, five prospective, 14 retrospective cohort studies. There were 16 studies that reported on fertility outcomes and women with infertility. Five studies reported on fertility and fertility outcomes in women with a diagnosis of infertility. The majority of the studies included utilized a hysteroscopic approach and a laparoscopic approach, but also included vaginal resection. I just see Pietro's. I have, so many, I have so many thoughts, Blake, but I'm. Yeah. We're going to, I'm going to let you finish. Yeah. We're going to put a plug in you for now and unplugged in you for now. See what I did there. So we always say that with a meta analysis, your results are only as good as the data that goes into them. And so with that being said, it's important to note that none of these studies included a combination of women with and without infertility, which is something important to note. So getting into the findings, also something to keep in mind in which we want to keep in mind the quality of studies going into meta-analysis, there was a lot of heterogeneity in these studies. It ranged between zero and a whopping 88%. This was largely because there's a, uh, just a mixture of different things, a lot of inconsistencies in uh, how they diagnose these. Some use vaginal ultrasounds, some use MRI. There's a wide variation in the definition of a uterine niche. Several studies failed to mention the size of the niche. Different types of infertility were included in diagnoses, and complications occurred in a decent amount of patients, but they didn't specify the details. So getting into the results. Overall, the effect of a niche resection on live birth rate was lower in women without infertility than in women with infertility. The live birth rate per different operative techniques overall showed similar trends. 
and the only RCT that included showed a significantly higher pregnancy rate after hysteroscopic repair than after expectant management and women diagnosed with infertility. However, the study had a high risk of bias. They used the Cochrane Risk Bias Tool, and because of potential selective reporting, uh, incomplete outcome, and uncertainty of the effect estimate, they reported a high risk of bias, which is really important to note. The majority of these studies were also assessed and have a high risk of bias. I'll note just the, the vast majority of these studies and, that were included. They also show that there were no differences in pregnancy and miscarriage rates between different populations. They showed a C-section scar pregnancy was reported in about 1% of pregnancies. And then lastly, four of the 145 hysteroscopic niche resection patients, there were almost 3% that had uterine dehiscence or rupture, but no uterine dehiscence was reported after the other in interventions. So in conclusion, on the basis of the current available data, the authors state that it is not advised to perform a niche resection to improve fertility outcomes. This is mainly because they state there's no clear differences in live birth, pregnancy, or miscarriage rates between the treatment operation approaches that were found. And they showed that the existing evidence needs to be viewed with caution because a lack of high quality controlled trials with high risk of bias and clear inclusion and exclusion criteria poor reporting on fertility history, and the use of reproductive techniques, all are things to be considered. So a couple of comments that I want to say, and then Pietro, I know that you're just burning to have some comments here, which I'm, I'm anxious to hear too. But when we examine this topic, there's a main question that we need to consider. For one, is the surgery beneficial in women with a niche in regards to reproductive outcomes? And once that relationship is established, then I think the next questions are one, which surgical method is superior in regard to reproductive outcomes? And then two, which surgical method is the safest in terms of obstetrical outcomes? And based off of the conclusion in this paper, the authors state that we don't quite know the answers to that. So I see these defects not uncommonly. I'm always tempted to repair them. I admittedly don't. So again, Pietro, I'm, I'm um, interested to hear your approach on this. Some of these look really big and scary, and the myometrium looks extremely thin. And I've even had patients who've had this repaired at an outside facility, and then they come and see me, and it looks like nothing was ever done. And so when I see that, it makes me think, well, maybe we shouldn't even be doing this at all, or it was done incorrectly. I don't know. So anyways, I'm curious to hear your all's thoughts. I, I admittedly have a couple of patients currently with this, and I've wondered whether or not to have this uh, done, whether I should proceed with surgery. And that's also kind of why I wanted to discuss this today too. So what say you all about the uterine niche? Well, it just so happens that I did a surgical consult for a patient this very morning on this topic. I feel like we're seeing a lot of these. The rising C-section rate, you're going to see more and more of these where you, wherever you are in the world. I've done probably at least one case every month for the last 10 months or so for revising cesarean scar defects. Fundamentally, what I tell patients is everyone has a scar in the uterus after C-section. Period. That's how you get the baby out. You have to have a scar. Not every cesarean scar defect is pathologic. Some are, some might be, some are not. And what I typically tell patients is there are a couple of good reasons to operate on a defect, but there are a bunch of even better reasons not to operate on a defect. For every C-section scar defect that I operate on, there's probably three or four that I'm actively trying to counsel against it. 
The defects that I think are slam dunks to operate on are the ones that you can see during the mid-cycle that are trapping fluid within the niche and within the fundal endometrium. If there's not fluid within the fundal endometrium, I just can't wrap my head around why there's any biologic plausibility where that could be bad for an embryo. If there's fluid in the lining and you're putting an embryo into that fluid, that ain't going to be good. We know that that's bad for embryos. We know that from other things that can drop off fluid in, in the lining of your uterus. The trickier ones are where there's just fluid in the niche. It's trapping it in the actual defect, but it's not making its way up to the uterus. There is some biologic plausibility where if there's fluid in that cavity, could the inflammatory milieu be changed and that make a more hostile environment? That's all kind of tricky. So I have a very clear, like, this makes good sense to operate on. Now, the question of how to operate on it, I think it's depending on what you're good at. Some people are better at open surgery. Some people are better at a minimally invasive approach. And some people can really only tackle this hysteroscopically. I think the hysteroscopic approach, you're just shaving and trying to make a little flatter of an area so you trap less fluid. You're not really reinforcing or reapproximating anything. It's really only once you get to laparoscop laparoscopic robotic approach or open approach, we're actually excising tissue and putting back normal myometrium to normal myometrium, ideally in a bunch of deep layers, middle layers, superficial layers to really get a really good reapproximation. The annoying thing about that is that we typically tell people you have to wait three months after any one of these surgical techniques to allow that area to heal before trying to get pregnant again. I think most of us are also recommending a repeat C-section at 37 weeks because you now are reintroducing a totally new uh, area of weakness and scar within that uterus. What we don't know is, does any of this actually work? You have sonographic evidence at the three-month mark that you've developed more myometrium if you've cut it out and repaired it. You can have sonographic evidence that you've eliminated fluid in the lining and trapping less of it in the niche. Those are all kind of proxy markers for like, oh, it looked like it worked, but the proof in the pudding is you put an embryo in and can you get them pregnant? It's really hard to prove. I don't think you'll ever get to a point where you have a really high quality study to show that. But Caesarean scar niche defects are sometimes just helpful to operate on because patients are symptomatic. I can't tell you how many patients will have spotting that lingers for seven to 10 days after their period's done and it's just being trapped in this niche. There's good non-infertility reasons to operate on this as well. So, so how do you how do you repair it? What's your approach? I do it open. I, I do tons of laparoscopic surgery. I've done this laparoscopically. I've done it open. I just think that the quality of the repair is better open. Little mini lap. I don't use the full cesarean scar incision. You get into the lower segment. You dissect the bladder off. I pop a probe sound through the cervix into the defect so I can feel exactly where the defect is. Some people use a hysteroscope with the light and looking for that kind of jack-o'-lantern sign. That's my marker for where to excise. Inject a little vaso, use an 11 blade to make an ellipsoid incision to fully excise normal tissue to normal tissue. And then I repair this with single interrupted stitches and layers. Bottom layer, throw a bunch of stitches and then I tie them. Middle layer, throw a bunch of stitches and then I tie them and then a serosal layer um, that I imbricate to really try to get a nice reapproximation. That's how I do it, but there's no right or wrong answer. If you're better surgeon robotically or laparoscopically, then that's perfectly reasonable. The tool is just a tool. It's not the, the the gold standard way to do it. Well, it sounds like you've got enough numbers to where you need to be publishing a paper because this paper is telling me opposite of what you're telling me. You, f you seem to feel pretty strongly that it works. And I think we have to be careful when we say it works. I mean, I can make a defect go away and prevent fluid from being trapped in it. That's to me the, the proof that I've repaired a cesarean scar defect appropriately. 
The hard part is then using that uterus and helping to get someone pregnant. And I'm very clear with patients about what we know and don't know. We don't know that replacing one scar for the other is any better. We've already shown that this tissue demonstrates an ability to not heal well. And it could be that this next opportunity for healing also does not heal well, but most of the time it does. And it looks much better afterwards if you know what you're doing. The other part we don't know about is risk of placentation, abnormalities, and cesarean scar uh, defect implantations. Uh, we don't know that this is risk-reducing. I've talked a lot about this with the people in MFM who manage abnormal placentation. We just don't know. Is it is it risk-reducing from an accretive perspective? Is it risk-reducing for people who have had a cesarean scar pregnancy in the past? Risk of recurrence, I typically quote for patients, is about 20%. If you've had one cesarean scar implantation and you're trying to get pregnant again, for a lot of patients, that's really unacceptably high, but we don't know that revising it is going to make it any lower. Yeah, I've become aware of some family planning literature and as well as MFM literature trying to look into who we should be doing these niche repairs on. And if there are certain people who, you know, under a certain myometrial thickness, certain histories would benefit from it to reduce C-section scar ectopic risk and to reduce um, risk of uterine rupture, uterine um, dehiscence. And so I think, yeah, jury's still out uh, on most of it, but hopefully we get more good data coming down the line soon to help us make these decisions. I think probably the, the cure for all of this is primary prevention, really drilling down on what's the optimal way to repair a uterus after you've done a C-section. Is it one layer? Is it two layers? Is it imbricating, locking versus not locking? Um, I'd rather, I'd love to never do these surgeries again. Um, and I, I think we have to figure out how to prevent them because if we're going to be doing C-sections at the rate that we're doing and potentially even increasing, we're just going to be seeing a lot of it on our end and kind of that secondary infertility population. To your point about primary prevention too, I do see more of these coming about when there's like a really late second stage arrest and that's when they're doing the C-section. Whereas the scheduled C-section for breach, yeah, you can see the scar, it's never a problem. And oh. so I think that's, you know, I don't do obstetrics anymore for good reason, but uh, I think something to think about when we're, when we're practicing obstetrics, the other risks of uh, really long labors to try and get the vaginal delivery. Hmm. The labored lower segment, I think, is the perfect setup for bad healing, particularly once you add choreo in there, You're just setting up tissues for not doing a good job coming back together. Molly, did you just come up with a study that you need to do? Uh, thesis number six from Blake Evans. Thank yeah, you. I'll every, start right on it. I'll get an IRB. <laughs> every podcast, we come up with another thesis project for you. So good luck six more months let's see if we can get it done wait we will be your committee your fns unplugged thesis committee <laughs> perfect uh, well let's bring it home let's talk about something uh, that's not the uterus that's not peer review that's not an acum dalen you're bringing a paper from the backyard you have a uh, a nice one from the folks at wild cornell medicine your current affiliation tell us a little bit about uh, ai and how we can use it for embryo ranking I'll tell you, I'll tell you in just a minute. First, I just want to commend you guys. We don't talk enough on the show about non-ART stuff. And I love it that all three of you went just reproductive biology and a lot of surgery where I was like, you know, catching up. But uh, use of the word niche, very confused about that, notwithstanding your excellent pronunciation. I, I just don't get it. But as you said, I'm going to talk about ART, AI. Uh, not necessarily by choice. If I'm honest, I'm kind of sick of talking about AI. Uh, the conversations generally, not in science, but in life, have just so grim. And it pretty much always comes down to like an existential threat of AI overtaking human expertise, creativity, you name it. 
Um, and there's like a million lists out there with what jobs are going to be made obsolete, supplanted by AI. And maybe you think that all those extra years of schooling might make uh, science, medicine more resistant to obsolescence. But then there's always radiology, right, guys? Uh, and no offense to you, my esteemed co-hosts, but it's not hard to imagine AI making headway and fostering a robust stimulation cycle. Now, I, I, I should say here that I've observed attendings, including Pietro here. I've seen him work. Uh, and the, the fellows, uh, well, he was a fellow then. I, I've observed attendings and fellows at my center. They've operated and been, I've been in on the discussion of these tough cases. And I'm awed by it, uh, their talent, the clinical judgment. But there's also these like so-called physician chatbots out there that are really heavily covered in the media. They're not completely useless uh, in my estimation, however inadequate that may be. Uh, precision robotics already pretty much incorporated into modern medical practice, as you guys know. So I'm putting it to you quickly before I get to the story, you guys make the case. Will REIs make it through the AI-driven purge unscathed? Why or why not? And, and what about all the supporting services? I mean, that's the thing about ART. It's so complex. It's not just about the docs, but it's about all the labs. So give me your reasons why you guys are still going to have a job in a decade once ChatGPT is, is doing stim cycle. Our job is going to be air traffic controller. And I think that's really the job of the embryologist in the lab in the future as well. I think it's going to be supervising at a high level and having automation and machine learning really help inform decision-making and kind of confirm that it, it it's right, it passes the sniff test. It makes sense for this specific patient. But the nitty-gritty, making a decision, choosing a dose, a starting dose, making an adjustment, I think most of us would probably be okay with doing away with that part. That part's not hard, and a computer can probably do it better when it's been exposed to hundreds of thousands of cycles. I would rather spend more time with patients and kind of interpreting results and contextualizing and kind of coming up with an overarching game plan than deciding if today I trigger versus tomorrow I trigger. How about yeah. Blake, Molly, what's your what's your uh, case? Make a case. Yeah, I think uh, the, the clinical decision-making in terms of what type of treatment approach, what type of surgery, when to start treatments, when to stop treatments, I think I think that stuff's going to be all, uh, we're still going to have a job, I think, but stuff like IVF dosing protocols and like Pietro said, when to trigger, when to do an embryo transfer, should you biopsy, should you not? I think a lot of that stuff will be AI related, but in terms of clinical decision-making processes and being with patients more, doing more procedures, I think that's, you can't have a robot do that. Would you let a robot do your egg retrieval day long? Testicular biopsy. We'll say, would you let a robot do a testicular biopsy on you? Because they've done hundreds of thousands before. Before you uh, gently caressed my shoulder at the meeting, I thought you were a robot, my friend. But uh, <laughs> here we are. All right. Well, well there's that. So <laughs> I don't even know why I said that. You're very personable and charismatic. You couldn't be a robot. ChatGPT <laughs> is more charming than I am. So all bets are off. I mean, it sounds like what you guys are getting at here. Molly, why don't you weigh in? I, I, you're just coming into the profession. And you're already about to be obsolete. What do you think? My plan is just to become entirely one with AI and get like a chip implanted in my brain. And then I can just do like, you know, 3,000 cycles a year. Boom, boom, boom. Yeah, but yeah, I do agree. I, wanna, I want the human touch. I want to spend time with my patients. And if I can outsource some of the other work, that sounds great. 
Yes. Well, I think what I'm I'm getting what you guys are putting down, I'm picking it up here, and that's that you guys are still going to be gainfully employed. Maybe wishful thinking, but I believe it. You made a good sell. But on the other side of it, there's a lot of elements of ART that could be handed over to AI uh, in patient care. It seems inevitable. Um, but before we get to that point, of course, we have to show like non-inferiority, right? We have to know that it works at least as well as a human, because although these things maybe can be shunted off to these, uh, you know, machine learning type programs, there's still some stakes, you know, there's still something to lose if they screw it up. Um, I certainly wouldn't trust Siri at the current state of the art to plan my day, much less do a testicular biopsy, as, as Blake alluded to. Um, but we've got to, you know, check in on the AI now and again. Siri's made some progress. Uh, check in, check in every now and again to see if it's ready to weigh in on things where the stakes are actually real. And to that end, embryologists from my own Center of Reproductive Medicine at Wild Cornell aim to test the concordance between embryo ranking performed by seasoned embryologists and AI. Uh, and as uh, I've just disclosed and Pietro pointed out, I, I should say, I, I work here at the Center for Reproductive Medicine, but I have no bias at all. Maybe a little bias, but like I said, I eviscerate my friends. That's how I know they're close. Uh, this study, very straightforward. It, it was led by Nikitsa Zaninovich, uh, really esteemed embryologist uh, and from the group of Zev Rosenwax, of course. Uh, in this work, they randomly selected 100 patient cycles. And I should say here, my bias here is clear, but it's something that could only be done, not only, but uh, is probably exclusive to this and few centers like it that really do all embryoscope, right? So all the cycles are, are time-lapse. And in this case, they chose 100 patient cycles randomly where there are at least em eight embryos that were uh, embryoscoped. Um, and for each of those embryos, there was a full time-lapse video as well as a single image at 120 hours. That information was given to five embryologists at the center um, and maybe one weakness here. It'd be nice if we had center uh, embryologists from other centers that might uh, make these results more robust, but you do what you can with what you have, right? Uh, also gave the data to eight distinct AI algorithms, right? And look at the methods for how those went. A lot of math there. I don't know anything about it. But um, the results were disappointing or maybe a relief, depending on your view. Among the five embryologists, the rankings were pretty highly concordant, right? But between the embryologists and the AI algorithms, concordance was significantly less. And, and drilling down a little bit into that, let's say you're given eight embryos. The random chance of concordance between any two assessors is going to be one in eight, right? Uh, 12.5%. Uh, the concordance between embryologists was around 60%. So they agreed with each other most of the time, uh, blinded. Um, and between the algorithms, it wasn't 12 and a half, but it was 40%. So significantly less than you would see amongst the embryologists. Uh, and there were two, I mean, this was notable. There were two AI algorithms out of those eight that were just bad. Uh, they were like on the level of random selection, 12 and a half percent. So th that's an important point, I think. Putting it all together, there's a couple of takeaways. One, AI, at least of the variety applied in this study, is not really ready for prime time when it comes to embryo ranking. But also, two, given the disparity between AI algorithms uh, in and of themselves and uh, the better than random, random performance of some of them. So some of them are, are performing at 40%, right, on average. So that's better than random. 
And some of them are performing terribly and some of them are performing better. So it seems like they they can be improved, right? Uh, and you've got to expect, in fact, looking at ChatGPT 3, 3.5, 4, et cetera, that the success of generations of these ranking models are going to approach and probably exceed their human counterparts. And I want to be specific here, at least when it comes to concordance, right? We're not saying that these AI algorithms, although this may be the case, may be more predictive about actual embryo quality. It's just to say that we'll come to a point, uh, I don't want to call it a singularity, but you'll come to a point of convergence amongst these AI algorithms where they all have so much information, I think that they'll all be driven to the same conclusions, given the empirical findings that are uh, you know, consolidated in, in aggregate there. So I feel like we're going to get to a point where concordance amongst AI prediction algorithms is approaching 100%. They agree 100% with each other. Is that necessarily going to be good and correlate with the like actual health of the embryos and outcomes remains to be seen. But uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to, or maybe you guys are probably dreading, but I'm looking forward to it as a scientist and, and a bit of a troll. The, the day when the algorithms are tested in RCTs, right, that can really assess that predictive value in terms of outcome, because that, I guess, is the holy grail for these machine learning enthusiasts, is that you take the human out of the judgment uh, and, and really flatten uh, the predictive capability across all patients, which I think is probably wishful thinking, given the variety and, and how elusive uh the the criteria for embryo quality are but i mean that's the idea guys what's your take i think all the ai problems we have currently and the lack of of solid data is a technologic problem that just needs to be overcome and i think the the rate of progress here is exponential and i think it's just a matter of time before we go from being 50 50 random chance model prediction to really exceptional model prediction. Um, I, I don't think that's too far off. And I think that we have to plan for it in the lab. We have to plan for it in clinical decision-making in REI. If not, we're going to be left behind and the people who are going to benefit from it are going to be the oncologists, the neurosurgeons, the orthopedic surgeons who are going to use it um, more adeptly than we are. I, I don't fear the AI. I welcome it and just want to be involved in the process to make sure that it actually does what we want it to do and, and does it well and does it fast. Yeah, I mean, if you, I welcome it too. If if we can make patient outcomes more efficient, better, give us as the physicians more time to do other things that, that really matter, rather than like you said, that's a perfect example of it. Pietro, just figuring out do I do I trigger today versus tomorrow? You know, should I let the follicles get a millimeter larger, or two millimeters, and maybe gain two or three more follicles? Well, it would be really nice to just have here's what the AI suggests doing based off of millions of prior cycles in a patient with uh, current diagnosis or similar diagnosis, similar age. So I welcome it. I, I'm sure it's it's uh, going to happen eventually, but we'll be looking back on this podcast 30 years down the road because I'm sure we'll be listening to these podcasts 30 years later and be like, man, remember when we said AI was going to be something maybe one day, but look at us now. I've done 10 minutes of work while the computers do all of it. I, I'm banking on the hologram. I don't I don't want the audio. I want the hologram of me doing it live. Like, a, should, like should also... egg retrieval? Hologram sure. egg retrieval? Yeah, yeah that's cool. 
In uh, 30 years, Blake, I think we're still going to be doing the pie. What do you mean? Listening all the <laughs> Celebrating yeah. our success. For God's sakes, we need this to pan out. We're going to be out of a job as soon as AI takes over with the purge. But just last question, maybe, Molly. You Dylan, are you saying that you want to be the Walter Cronkite of REI podcasts? You want to ride this <laughs> into the I, I will take it. Listen, with Theranos, Elizabeth Holmes already took a swipe at my living, all right? And there'll be people behind her, and endocrine will be out of a job. So I need this podcast, guys. I need it to end out and go viral. <laughs> Let's go. Last question. There is maybe a camp that would say, uh, what about intuition? Maybe an older uh, physician's intuition. Any meat to that? I think that's the air traffic control analogy, right? Like there are things that the machine can't pick up. I can't understand that this patient um, just had a family member die last month and this is the last attempt that they have because they have limited resources and you have to like make some decisions that the algorithm probably would not recommend or suggest and you deviate from that. And that's the air traffic control rule. That's your, where your intuition comes into play. Um, but I think those are few and far between scenarios for the bell-shaped curve. I think a lot of patients stand to benefit from machine learning, particularly for something that's kind of routine and pattern recognition, like ovarian stimulation should probably also just acknowledge for all of our listeners i do have a conflict of interest here i am a medical advisor for a life no, here we go here well, we go i think it's important <laughs> to have these things be transparent you know in the in the interest of we talked about peer review and transparency at the beginning so i do have a bias uh, but I encourage everyone to read this article and decide for yourself if you think that this is actually coming in a big way or not um, my gut tells me yeah and you better prepare for it and learn about it um, to tell you from the editorial side of FNS, we're seeing a huge a number of papers that are using black box algorithms, machine learning. Um, it's posed a real challenge getting people who kind of understand the science and the math to be able to be high quality reviewers for it. Um, so that's something that we're all kind of beefing up and trying to strengthen because we're expecting just more and more of this work. Look how we've come full circle, Pietro. What a, an agreeable symmetry to the show. I just want to say as a disclaimer, I really hope no one's going to send me a lot of papers to peer review. I, I am a busy person. I'm not doing, you know, acute surgeries, as you talked about, or any kind of niche repairs, <laughs> but I do have a job. Final word about intuition, guys. I don't think it's a real thing. I think AI can figure out intuition. And I think when we think we have this brilliant intuition, oh, I'm going to trigger today. And I just have a gut feeling about it. It's that our brain has done the AI algorithm and has compiled all their other cycles and all your years of training. And I think AI is going to do it well. It might do it better than some of us who, you know, some of us naturally have are better at that than others. But I think intuition can be AI'd. I'm with you, Molly. I think you're right. <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, I think the Blue Oyster cult said it best. Don't fear the Reaper. Uh, I think here it's uh, don't fear the AI. It's coming, baby. I think Embrace it. That song wrong, buddy. Embrace it. Well, guys, we could do this for another hour. I'm sure Molly couldn't, but I think this has been real. It's been fun. It's been real fun. And I think we should do it again next month. You guys up for it? I'll see you there. I don't know. I might show. <laughs> All right. Luke, lukewarm. Well, if you're still listening next month, we'll be back with another episode of FNS Unplugged, which I think is kind of just the laid back, uh, cool cousin to the FNS on Air podcast, which again, full disclosure, I'm on that one too. But until we meet again, bye-bye. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air, brought to you by Fertility and Sterility in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This episode was produced by Dr. Michael Simone and Dr. Molly Cornfield. 
This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect fertility and sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.